if someone has served in the House at some point between 1973 up until 2012, all that data is up there and people could draw their own inferences. Congress isn't working. That's a favorite line of pundits, late-night TV comedians, and every political candidate who promises to fix Washington. So who exactly is at fault here? That's what Alan Wiseman wanted to figure out. A professor at Vanderbilt University, Wiseman comes to Chicago Harris as a visiting fellow with the Center for Political Entrepreneurship. Professor Wiseman, thank you for talking to me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Wiseman is one of two political scientists behind the Legislative Effectiveness Project. It's an ambitious study looking at what it takes to get things done in Congress and which representatives are really pulling their weight. Congress now has a 5% approval rating. Only 5% of the people approve of what Congress is doing. You know who those 5% are? Congress. They're the only ones. They think they're doing okay. Well, my co-author and collaborator on the project is Professor Craig Wolden of the University of Virginia at the Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy. But before Craig was at the University of Virginia and before I was at Vanderbilt University, we were both down the hall at Ohio State University in the political science department. Mm. And at Ohio State, we had pretty much gone into a routine where every day we had lunch together and would compare notes on teaching or research projects and the like. And him and I are both just complete politics news junkies. And it wasn't uncommon for us to more or less debrief about recent developments in Congress as covered the evening before. And the more we spoke about things, it just became increasingly clear to us that on certain topics, there's a pretty substantial disconnect from the ways in which political scientists or scholars of political economy study legislatures and essentially what's going on in the world and the types of things that really attract journalistic attention. When we think about the U.S. Congress or legislatures in general around the world, it seems reasonable to argue that some members of Congress are generally better than others at moving bills to the legislative process and gain their agendas realized in public policy and the like. Mm-hmm. And even though that seems very straightforward and there's you know, quite a bit of journalistic attention on these types of issues, a lot of political biographies written, political scientists had spent very little time focusing on these types of considerations. Mm-hmm. So Craig and I would find ourselves just basically shooting from the hip and saying, okay, well, suppose someone's really effective at lawmaking. What types of expectations will we have for the types of bills they introduce, where they go, how do they go in certain ways? What would this mean for where they go in their careers? What types of people would be attracted to running? And then we took a step back and realized, well, one of the biggest things that's really inhibiting our exploration of these topics was we didn't even really have a sensible or straightforward metric of what constitutes our notion of legislative effectiveness. So that really was the first step. And this is a long, ongoing project for the two of us. We started this almost about eight years ago, around 2007 is when we first started having these early conversations. And actually, I was quite fortunate, really about a year after we had the first working draft of a paper that engaged these types of topics, I was fortunate enough to come to the Harris School and present a research seminar on these topics. And the faculty, uh, most of which were focused largely on political economy, gave me just amazing, direct, and critical feedback, um, much of which was ultimately incorporated into our final research and the published book that just came out this past fall. So it's really been a long, at sometimes grueling process, but we're very happy with the final output. Mm -hmm. I feel there's a very pervasive sense that um, Congress isn't doing a good job, right? That effectiveness Mm -hmm. is, is low. And so 
when people or the press or whoever said things about Congress isn't working, what kind of metrics were they looking at? And mm-hmm. were those the same or different as what you wanted to look at? Yeah, I think the focus tends to be a bit different in the sense that usually when the press or the media, more generally speaking, or observers of Congress are focusing on Congress being an ineffective institution, very often they're looking either sort of the aggregate numbers of bills that pass the House and are signed into law mm-hmm. or the Senate as well. Or alternatively, they might be focusing on a few very salient and potentially quite contentious pieces of legislation that either do or don't advance further in the legislative process. And we would not want to disagree with those claims. I mean, just it's very easy to point out the fact that across these recent Congresses, in terms of aggregate legis- the aggregate amount of legislation produced, it's quite low. I mean, historically low in some cases. But that being said, it's very easy for people to look at these low numbers and then take a step back and say, ah, it must be basically everyone in the chamber is incompetent or no one's really trying to push an agenda forward or really nothing is being done. And what we'd argue is that's definitely not the case. It's still the case that every day people are working hard. Some people are still more successful advancing their agendas than others. And even though highly contentious pieces of legislation don't go as far as some people might want them to, in many other cases, we could point to a variety of very, I would say, polarizing or at least contentious pieces of legislation that do make it forward even in these polarized times. So for every debt relief bill that doesn't move forward, we still have seen things like the Affordable Care Act move forward in a highly politicized environment. So it may not be entirely appropriate to say just simply no one's able to get things done. It It's just more the case that people might be picking their battles more selectively than they have in the past. The definition that we employ in our research is essentially trying to characterize the extent to which individual members of Congress are successful at moving their agenda items, meaning those bills that they sponsor, through the different stages in the legislative process. And we also want to account for, you know, essentially the substantive significance of these agenda items, because obviously some bills are very substantial in terms of their likely impact on either the economy or the American polity, more broadly speaking, and some of them might be relatively commemorative in focus or a bit more minor, such as renamings of post offices. No offense towards those people who want post offices named after them, but the striking of coins, commemorative pieces that clearly won't have substantial impacts on the economy as a whole. And we want to account for these differences. So what we essentially did is we were very fortunate to have some extremely talented computer programmers that we employed as research assistants. We went to Thomas, which is the Library of Congress's website. Mm -hmm. And drawing on Thomas, we essentially ripped all the data from Thomas down for every bill that was introduced, every public bill, so every HR, that was introduced into the United States House of Representatives from essentially 1973 up until 2008. Mm For every bill, then, we're able to identify which member of the House sponsored it, and we're also able to identify every status step that the bill made from being introduced to possibly being signed into law. So some bills, they just get introduced, they get referred to committee, nothing happens. Some of them, they get referred to committee, there might be some sort of committee markup, they might come up for a voting committee, it might be reported out of the committee onto the floor, there might be floor debate, they might actually pass the House, after that they might actually be perhaps pass the Senate or ultimately be signed into law by the president. And what we want to do is basically take all this data and come up with essentially what we think are five crucial status steps that each bill has to pass in the U.S. House if they're actually going to be signed into law. So what we did then is for every member of Congress in every two-year period, and by member of Congress I'm referring to members of the House because we haven't done this for the Senate yet, 
but for every member of the House, we identify in every two-year Congress how many bills they introduced, how many of those bills received any sort of action in committee, how many of those bills received any sort of action beyond committee, such as being reported out of committee and perhaps coming up for a floor vote, how many of those bills passed the House, and ultimately how many of those bills were signed into law. Given that data, then we upgrade, essentially, or upweight or downweight bills based on their substantive significance. So if bills were the focus of a write-up in the CQ Almanac, the end of the year write-ups, mm-hmm. we denoted those as being substantive and significant, and we upweighed those bills, so to speak, because clearly an objective third party found them, or, or at least we're willing to argue they're an objective third party, found them to be um, more salient than have the average bill. Mm-hmm. And likewise, we had our computer programmers. We worked with them over a pretty long period of time to come up with a computer filter such that we could pull language out from bill titles to identify precisely which ones were commemorative in nature. Mm -hmm. So bill titles that provided for the renaming or the striking of coins or medals, things along those lines, we pulled those out as being considered commemorative pieces of legislation, and those were essentially downweighed. And then using these different status steps and these different indicators for significance, we're able to generate more or less a summary metric that we refer to as a legislative effectiveness score, which is a really parsimonious way to capture how successful any given member of the House of Representatives is at moving their legislative agenda items through the legislative process, adjusting for substantive significance of the bills or accounting for them in comparison to all other members in the House across that two-year period. Okay. And... Being able to move a bill from stage one to stage two to stage three, mm-hmm. what sort of traits is that you know, a proxy for? What does that, what does that signify about the people who are sure. doing that work? That's a great question because this, of course, raises the question, really, what's driving effectiveness? And one of the points that we've argued and we've engaged in a lot of empirical analysis to demonstrate is that legislators are effective both because of personal traits, and by that I mean it could be their previous careers, it could be their previous training, there could be certain certain features that are correlated with gender, for example. That's been one of the findings that's emerged pretty naturally from our data. You have personal traits, but you also have institutional traits. And by institutional traits, I mean someone, some individuals are in positions of institutional influence because they're committee chairs or subcommittee chairs. This is obviously going to provide them with privileged access to the agenda, with further resources to advance their own agendas. Uh, Likewise, members of the majority party are likely going to be in a privileged position in comparison to members of the minority party. Mm -hmm. Members who are more senior in the House are probably going to have some degree of institutional prerogatives that less senior members of the House might not. So an individual's effectiveness ends up, as we illustrate, being correlated with a variety of these personal as well as institutional circumstances. The one point that Professor Bolden and I would like to emphasize is that essentially these scores are extremely useful for capturing precisely what we want to measure, and that being the extent to which individuals are successful at moving their own agenda items to the legislative process. But then coming back to the point that I was raising earlier, when someone says, okay, you study legislative effectiveness, how about this? The this is often a lot of things that our measurement couldn't even try to handle. So, for example, we know in the real world there's a lot of extremely, I would argue, quote-unquote, effective lawmakers that don't actually introduce many bills or don't really advance many of their own agenda items. But they essentially work behind the scenes. They're the deal brokers. They're able to get people to the table. They might be able to facilitate compromise. But they're doing that in service to other people's agenda items. We know these people exist. We can point to a lot of historical examples of this. And unfortunately, our measurement cannot tap that at all because we're focusing explicitly on those types of agenda items that individuals themselves sponsor. So if there are some of these deal makers that work behind the scenes, 
we can't capture that. You know, and likewise, some people would say the most effective type of legislator is someone that just stops things from happening. There are sure. people that work behind the scenes, engage in dilatory actions. They're good deal killers. I mean, this is their job to go in and torpedo things from moving forward. Mm-hmm. And likewise, the current analysis doesn't allow us to engage or identify who these individuals are. But Professor Volden and I are engaged in a series of follow-up research projects to really try to identify the extent to which some committee chairs or perhaps subcommittee chairs might be essentially more successful than others at killing things. You know, perhaps some subcommittee chairs are known to be the place where certain things go to die. Mm -hmm. And we should be able to identify by using our data who those individuals are, which subcommittees are most likely to be the recipients of perhaps promising ideas, but they're not going to be moving any further. And that might be some way to quantitatively capture variance among members in terms of their ability to kill legislation. But thus far, this broader issue of people who are affected behind the scenes, we can't measure that. And likewise, If you believe that effectiveness is meant to denote anything other than our specific definition of effectiveness, it's very careful as to how you try to interpret our scores. After we generated these legislative effectiveness scores, one of the things we want to do is basically see whether or not they correlate with the things we would hope they correlate with if we think that we're actually capturing any meaningful construct with our measurement. So... You know, the best way of saying this is we want to see if it passed the sniff test, so to speak. And early analysis demonstrated very nicely that if you're a member of the majority party, you're more effective on our metric than members of the minority party. More senior members of the House are more effective than freshman term members of the House on average. And likewise, committee or subcommittee chairs are more effective than rank and file members. So no surprises, really, which we were very happy about, because if we had found something else, we would have had some broad questions as to whether or not we should be doing this because we're clearly measuring something. That's very weird. Um, But that being said, then, some very interesting findings did emerge, some of which we had really no expectations for, but they were quite interesting in their own right. So, for example, if you take a look at someone in their freshman term, meaning they've just been newly elected, so they're only in the first two years in Congress, meaning seniority effects haven't kicked in, they haven't really had the chance to develop in house expertise for certain topics in comparison to many other members. What we were able to demonstrate is those individuals in their freshman term that were basically at the top of their cohort in legislative effectiveness, so to speak, basically above the median or above average, they're 50% more likely to run for higher office within the first 10 years in Congress than someone who is below the median. Likewise, individuals who are below the median, so essentially if you're a relatively ineffective freshman is another way of thinking about this, the most ineffective freshmen are are 50% more likely to actually voluntarily retire from office or, or leave office within 10 years. And note, that's not to say that they're likely to get knocked out of office because of electoral challenge. These are individuals that across a 10-year span, they've decided not to stand for re-election. So there's a very strong correlation between essentially how effective you are in your freshman term and the career choices you make over the next 10 years. Mm. Which should suggest that these folks are being sort of weeded out? Possibly. So it could be, I mean, we're willing to argue that we... Most people would believe that politicians tend to be ambitious career-wise. I mean, there's obviously a certain type of, of person that selects into this type of job. Mm-hmm. And you would imagine that upon arriving in Congress, you might get a sense very early in the process as to whether or not this job is for you. 
So you might have early success that makes you want to pursue this job further and perhaps even pursue lawmaking at a higher level, such as running for the Senate or alternatively running for the governor's office or perhaps trying to get on a presidential ticket. And alternatively, individuals that are relatively unsuccessful in their first term, this also gives them a snapshot of what they might be in store for in future terms. And it's clearly the case that many of these individuals are choosing to extricate themselves from the institution. Mm-hmm. And what do we do with findings like that? What's the next step now that we've learned this what do we do with it? It really depends on what you're interested in. Right now, there's a lot of scholarship, both inside and outside the academy, on candidate recruitment. As you noted earlier, I mean, many people out there basically have this gut reaction, thinking that Congress is a broken institution, because not able to produce laws that are important. That's an open question as to whether or not that might be an appropriate characterization. But let's say for a second that you believe that. That suggests that we either need to change the way in which the institution works or you probably need to change personnel in some way. If you think you need to change personnel, meaning basically hire more effective lawmakers, then our findings at least provide you with guidance for the types of the types of characteristics that might be correlated with more effective lawmaking that suggests from a candidate recruitment stage, people should be trying to seek out certain types of candidates, either based on previous work experiences, uh, based on their own personal characteristics. And by that, I mean the way they approach problems. And to some degree, there's been some findings that are, some people have argued, are relatively provocative regarding the role of women in Congress. One of the findings that emerged very nicely in our data is that controlling for majority versus minority party status, as well as seniority, or whether or not people have committee chairs, female lawmakers tend to be more effective than male lawmakers. They score, they have higher scores on our metric. And this result is particularly profound or particularly pronounced if you think about female lawmakers in the minority party. So uh, women minority party lawmakers are notably more effective than their male counterparts. As to what's driving this result, auxiliary analysis suggests that the points in the process in which women are being more successful than men are those points in the lawmaking process for which bargaining and compromise are particularly important. So trying to get things out of committee or trying to get things to receive a floor vote, Mm -hmm. which many of my colleagues who study psychology or social psychology in particular have said that's consistent with a wide array of findings that points to different styles of bargaining negotiation among genders. So our large sample findings seem to be consistent with some of this laboratory evidence that's out there regarding different bargaining styles among men versus women. Likewise, something that we demonstrate very nicely in the data is that women in the minority party and men in the minority party, they behave very differently compared to when they're in the majority party. So when men and women are the majority party, they both introduce lots of bills. As soon as men move move from the majority to the minority, they, on average, introduce very few bills or much fewer bills than they did when they were in the majority party, whereas women consistently continue to introduce large amounts of legislation. As a result, you could probably imagine some organizations have found our findings quite interesting in terms of trying to change the demographic composition of the legislature, perhaps electing more women might hopefully pave, they would argue, might hopefully pave the way towards greater compromise or facilitating different types of bargaining outcomes such that more legislative enactments could occur. On the other hand, there's open questions as to what types of legislation would emerge under these circumstances. So there's quite a bit of follow-up research to be done.
The book was published or was released by Cambridge Press back in October. And then we had a press conference at the National Press Club in which we talked about the book being released and talked about a website, www.thelawmakers.org, which is a website that provides a broad overview of the project, uh, provides much more detailed information regarding the calculations employed, and also it allows people to download all the data themselves for their own use, their own research use. And also there's an interactive feature involving a map of the United States where people can essentially identify for any member of the U.S. House from 1973 up till 2012 what their legislative effectiveness score was and how it compares against a baseline. So we developed this to be very user-friendly. Hopefully it would be incorporated into classroom settings to both generate interest for the project and also to get students to really think about the causes and consequences of what we're denoting as legislative effect. Um, As you might imagine, mid to late October last year was reasonably close to the elections, and our website received a substantial amount of media attention that was then ultimately incorporated by some politicians themselves. So uh, Lamar Smith of Texas, for example, for a short period of time, if you went to his homepage on the U.S. House website, the first thing you'd see is an announcement identifying himself as the most effective lawmaker in the 112th (laughs) Congress. And there are likewise, there are other lawmakers that wrote press releases, op-eds, tweeted about their scores and the like. And likewise, some members of the press were also quick to jump on members of Congress that they, based on the discussion of our scores or analysis of our scores, that they viewed as relatively ineffective. So even though Professor Bolden and I are doing our best to steer ourselves away from being directly involved in any aspect of electioneering, everything we've done right now in terms of research thus far, we're trying to be as transparent as possible to try to clarify precisely what these metrics are. But you know, by this, at the same point, if someone has served in the House at some point between 1973 up until 2012, and actually we'll be updating the scores this coming summer, so soon it'll be through 2014, you know, essentially all that data is up there and people could draw their own inferences. Mm-hmm. And what are you able to learn or discern about historical trends? Um, well, one of the things that's changed, or there was definitely a notable change that occurred when the Republicans first took over the House in the 104th Congress. So that's 1995 for people that don't speak Congress language. Um, so essentially, if you take a look at our data, and it, it's slightly difficult to engage in very direct time comparisons because of the way we normalize the scores, but we still can draw some meaningful cross-time comparisons regarding essentially the correlates or determinants of legislative effectiveness. But one of the things that emerges very naturally from the data is that if you take a look at the relative impact or the relative benefit, so to speak, of being a committee chair and how it relates to legislative effectiveness, it takes a huge downward spike once the Republicans took over the House. So under Gingrich as Speaker, one of the first things that he did, as some scholars and journalists have noted, is that he essentially tried to move the uh, policymaking of very important substantive legislation away from what we normally think of as authorizing committees to what we think were the appropriations committee. So essentially what it meant is that those committees that normally deal with authorizing legislation were no longer handling, to some degree, the bread and butter of their policy area, whereas a lot of the policy matters that they normally dealt with were being handled through appropriations. So what that means is that the weight that the committee chair used to really carry, so to speak, was less influential in these Republican Congresses. And even though business, as Gingrich tried to establish it, changed pretty significantly across a relatively short time period, the relative value of a committee chair or the relative impact of a committee chair was still consistently lower during the Republican era as during, in comparison to the Democratic eras. And to some degree, it didn't really recover. 
You talked about how more targeted recruiting mm-hmm. could be sort of an implication of this work. Let's say I'm sort of a headhunter for the RNC or whoever, sure. trying to fill an open seat, looking for fresh faces. What am I looking for? What kind of people should jump out of me? Right. Well, I guess it depends on what you're ultimately looking for. And by that, I mean, if you're a headhunter for the RNC, the Democratic counterpart, for example, I mean, do you care about whether or not that person's an effective lawmaker or do you only care about whether or not they obtain the office? Okay. If you care about them obtaining the office, then truthfully, our research can't speak to that yet. But we are interested and we're engaging auxiliary research that's really trying to explore the extent to which rank and file voters even value this notion of effectiveness. So we're trying to design and we're in the process of designing a survey experiment in which we're presenting real people with information about their candidates' policy positions as well as their legislative effectiveness scores to try to identify whether or not voters even place any value on this and as well as whether or not they make some trade-off between, say, the effectiveness of a given member and their policy positions. Because truthfully, even though many scholars for all intents and purposes, assume that people might care about this in some way. It's not clear empirically whether or not they do. And thus far, there really wasn't a very clean metric to employ to even capture what we're known as legislative effectiveness. That's actually, that's a striking question about do voters care about this? Sure. um, Since you've been sort of touring around sharing this Mm -hmm. non-academically, just sort of anecdotally, um, what what kind of response have you gotten from sort of the general lay population? Yeah. Um, are people excited? Or are people like, ah, oh, of course they're not doing, you know. No, no, no. I think people have been quite excited. I think people are interested in really getting a sense of the systematic variation we uncover, how that variation relates to what's going on in the real world. You know, contrary to the way in which people or there's a discussion of the public disdain for the political process. Uh, Craig and my experiences thus far have been that people are really excited to talk about politics and they're excited to understand what's going on. So hopefully we're providing them with a constructive lens through which to identify the world in which we're living in and the process itself that could provide them once again with an educated perspective on what's going on in Washington. Professor Wiseman, it's been excellent talking to you. Thanks for having me. This has been Radio Harris. We'd love it if you could share this episode on Twitter or Facebook. It was produced by me, Jake Smith, with music from A Smile for Timbuktu, Christian Bjorklund, Jared C. Balog, and Dark Wizard. Thanks for listening. <laughs>